0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Live Beyond Limits with Ian Robertson. First of all, I'd like to welcome you back to my podcast. If you're a first-time person or first-time listening to my podcast, I hope you find it helpful and also something that stimulates and creates some thoughts and ideas and maybe ways for you to think about kind of the world around you. This whole podcast is the opportunity for us to kind of see how we can stretch our limits and grow as people as we've gone through the last couple of podcasts I've been looking at hopelessness and hope and how do we find hope, I kind of also wanted to lead into a new conversation. Part of an area that I'm always interested in my clinical work is trauma. And trauma seems to have quite a profound effect. It has a profound effect within mental health. It has a profound effect in addictions. It also has a profound effect culturally and even globally it's just one of those big conversations that underpins a lot of things in human suffering that people go through, individuals, cultural societies. And so uh, as I think about um, the beginnings of this this conversation, I'm gonna be going down the road of looking at trauma, but also looking at it uh, specifically for the role it plays within addictions and mental health. And this will be quite a few series I've been put together on, on this conversation. So um, certainly grab a seat, dig in, and, and hopefully um, you'll find this this series that I'm going to go through interesting and helpful. And if you know somebody out there who's experienced trauma uh, within um, your own personal circle, maybe even yourself, I hope that this can give you a different lens or a new lens or maybe some new perspective and ways to think about Um, these experiences that others go through and potentially even yourself. Listen, let's look at the history of trauma, first of all. The history of trauma has many layers to it. You know, starting off with, it's not a new conversation. And I think it's important to bring this up because the ideas of trauma have gone back, as far back as to the ancient Egyptian and Greek medicine, where, you know, In their earlier days, they would see hysteria as a concept of trauma hysteria. Um, And the word is is actually kind of an interesting word. Um, Certainly, it's a little bit, um, you know, if you go back in that time period, uh, it wasn't grounded in a whole lot of science or research, but it was defined as hysteria as kind of meaning a, um, a uterus. It was defined as a dried-up and a wandering uterus throughout the body, looking for moisture therefore treating to the various types of symptoms. And so hysteria was understood to be, from that perspective, quite sexist and quite um, short-sighted in thinking. But what's interesting was that the concept of hysteria was already being um, explored. It was being... Um, you know, trying to under trying to find some ways of understanding what is it, what's happening, and although it was it did miss the the target um, in terms of really understanding it, it did connect it to some concepts that something was going on in the body that was causing these types of symptoms uh, in 1621. Um, Thomas Willis uh, was starting to do postmortems. Postmortems um, provided some evidence as to kind of what was really going on with hysteria, and he completely refuted and discounted this kind of wandering uterus theory around why um, hysteria was uh, evident in, in mostly women. In the Middle Ages, we know that people who had uh, symptoms or conditions of hysteria were understood to be somewhat uh, demonically possessed uh, and so that demonic uh, being possessed by a demonic spirits or things had led to these layers of hysteria and, and neurosis so the, the early thoughts of hysteria um, certainly were grounded in some types of thinking but uh, certainly led to, the period of 1859 where Bukrat was the first one to note the resemblance of hysteria back to childhood trauma. And I think this is super profound um, because here we can see back in 1859 that somebody's already starting to link that people's responses in a, in a form of hysteria have early childhood experiences attached to them. Uh, uh, adverse, early childhood adverse experiences. In 1880, uh, Hubert Page, who was a British surgeon, began to write about kind of the functional disorders and termed uh, post-traumatic stress disorder as a nervous shock. Uh, nervous shock was, uh, at that point, being linked to hysteria. So obviously, clearly linking it to the nervous system. In the 19th century, uh, Jean-Martin Charcot began to identify the resemblance or identified the relationship, again, uh, between childhood trauma and hysteria, and this was in Paris, France. His great contributions uh, was the classification of trauma symptoms that resembled kind of the neurological damages, including the motor paralysis, uh, sensory losses, and convulsions, and amnesia, and these other states, which are quite somewhat uh, dissociative, uh, that were being evident and identified uh, within his research. So, you know, this, when we think about this linking of of Jean Marcotte, Kind of ties in with the linking of Briquette in 1859. In the mid 1880s, um, Sigmund Freud uh, stated that hysteria was caused by psychological traumas, um, which caused altered states of consciousness. And that's um, not uh, today we kind of understand that to be somewhat quite true. That the the idea of the self, the conscious self, is actually uh, created and has many parts to it and trauma does cause splits in the conscious self which lead to these alter types of states. Alter states are also Um, somewhat dissociative. Uh, Janet Pierre uh, at that time period also called these states dissociative, and Freud used to call these states, rather than calling it dissociative, he called them double consciousness, um, which kind of ties into a little bit of the split conscious or the many parts to conscious self. Then we also know that the impact of trauma in wars had a profound effect and led to also a little bit more deeper understanding, uh, to trauma. Uh, there was also a lot of stigma also at that same time period. Um, the stigma was that only weak kind of cowardly people would succumb to the effects of war. And so if you had a freeze response, on the battleground, um, you, you were defined as someone who was cowardly or these types of stigmatic, um, terms uh in in this is going back as far back in written literature as you know 18 or 1918. In 1941 Abraham uh, Cardiner encouraged more humane treatment of veterans in his writings the traumatic neurosis of war and he started to understand the impact of the the military vet that was on the war front. and their experiences to either fight, flight, or freeze responses, mostly freeze. That these needed to be understood, or the fight or flight, they need to be understood from a more of a compassion understanding that war in itself had a profound impact on somebody's um, nervous system, and and therefore they were they were they were actually impacted um, impacted, and they were suffering from the impacts of war. The Vietnam War was really the beginnings of a big shift in the world of trauma. Veterans were starting to come back after the Vietnam War and they were defining or describing that they were noticing challenges and difficulties in managing their temper, violent outbursts, they were suffering from severe nightmares. There was an increased um, impact of, of substance use, alcohol and other substances. A lot of relationship breakdowns and and many vets from Vietnam were struggling uh, interpersonally and and they were struggling to manage in the work environments. This is where the PTSD diagnosis um, evolved from and it evolved from um, Vietnam veteran hospitals uh, during this time period in the 70s. The domestic violence in Burgess and Linda Holstrom in 1972 when they looked at the features of the military vets that were coming back and how PTSD was being kind of defined from, from the traumatic impact of war, they also identified the same similar features and patterns that women who experienced traumatic rape uh, and traumatic sexual assaults, uh, they were experiencing the same symptoms. Um, and and it also led to future studies for childhood sexual abuse and the impact on that into late adulthood. So their research started to kind of link trauma also to domestic violence and other types of violence that is incurred onto women. And then War Vets in 1980 uh, really started to to advocate for more prominence of this PTSD diagnosis. Um, It made it into the DSM-3 in the 80s, early 80s, 1980. And it was was then that the symptoms of domestic abuse and rape survivors were also given recognition to their similar or of same features of traumatic effect from, from violence towards them. So... As we can come to understand, there's been a long history going back from the ancient and Greek medicine all the way through. What's really important to understand here is trauma has has literally um, been around for a really, really long time. And people have started to explore this and even linking if we talk about childhood trauma to hysteria as far back as 1859. This conversation is not a new conversation And what's really most interesting about this is despite the ongoing um, research and conversations about the impact of trauma, whether it is childhood, whether it is um, specifically to victimization of violence towards women, to war vets, and many other forms of victimization that people experience, it's still took till 1980 before it was recognized within the American Psychiatric Association to the DSM-3. Um, and, you know, we're 2020 today and, you know, one can still ask the question, how recognized is is trauma for as a diagnosis within the DSM-5, within the psychiatric systems today? I think it is becoming more understood and it's becoming Certainly more recognized, um, but still, still to kind of ask yourself the question: Listen, um, is it is it a diagnosis that is identified and given to people who have experienced trauma, rather than diagnoses that are are kind of uh, secondary in nature? You know, this if we look at trauma and the impact on a society, and we look at trauma and the impact on the individual, ninety percent or up to 90%, uh, some may argue even more, of the public mental health system and clients who experience addictions have experienced trauma or been trauma exposed. Youth justice also has got numbers that are quite similar and one could also ask ask these same questions around the adult um, criminal justice system. But we know 90% of the public mental health and addiction systems we have clients that have experienced or being trauma exposed. Of that number, 34 to 53% of childhood uh, of, of our clients have experienced some forms of childhood sexual abuse. 70% we know of the trauma of the of of the uh, general population have experienced um, trauma. 20% will likely result in PTSD. If we look in Canada, one in ten Canadians will suffer PTSD. And we look at the overall construction of these numbers whether these numbers are put together through um you know uh, through canadian statistics off canada and many other places or if we look in the states samsa or we look at the world health organization the numbers really don't change very much what we do know is the majority of people uh within the canadian stats one in ten people that will suffer PTSD. most will actually recover uh, which more for me was more important is the idea of the profoundness of these numbers, especially within the mental health and the addiction systems. I think it's quite profound and within those systems to understand that thirty four to fifty three percent have experienced some forms of childhood sexual abuse is a staggering um, uh, staggering number of a huge magnitude. As we continue on the conversation and we we look a little bit more, into trauma, we can start to understand too, you know, uh, kind of what is there is how is it defined today? Um, trauma is actually defined as when a person's exposed to some forms of death or a threatened death or actual threatened death or some forms of a serious injury or threats of uh, uh, violence towards. I mean, it's either a direct exposure or witnessing him. There's also an indirect component to it. You might have learned about a loved one or a close uh, family member, a friend that has been trauma-exposed. And if the event involved actual or, or threatened death it, or, or potential violence or accidental, these types of impacts of just kind of learning about them can actually trigger a traumatic effect. Uh, we also know that um, repeated or extreme indirect uh, exposure um, you know or or direct um, can also impact people whose jobs uh, require them to um, to to kind of uh, support populations of people that are being affected this would be like our first responders where they're exposed to many types of things that um, have a traumatic impact on the the human condition of the professional when we look at um, you know one of the things that's becoming quite you know popular today or discussed a little bit more today is is um, trauma-informed care and I think that's one of the most important aspects is that we start to think about how do we provide care as organization within organizations and within the public health, mental health systems, and 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 substance abuse uh, treatment providers or treatment systems that that we start to think about um, knowing that the the disproportionate amount of our clients that comes through the door is actually trauma implicated. Um, it's almost to a point where we would say uh, when we when we connect with our clients that we we need to assume that there is a trauma uh, until we learn otherwise because of these numbers that are so staggering, this 90% plus. And so creating environments uh, that are trauma sensitive and trauma aware and trauma informed is important for all of us that work in, in, in the roles we do within mental health and addictions and creating safety and, and creating um, a way that we're sitting with clients that they're feeling safe and and connected and that we're providing interviews that have you know a pacing and in, uh in, in a way where where clients are able to you know kind of understand and not be overwhelmed by the process itself because coming in to see professionals can be quite quite um quite anxious for many clients and overwhelming for them and if you have trauma it's even uh Quite quite easier as you start to talk about some of your features to easily get triggered, so professionals need to have insight around what to notice when a client's becoming triggered, what do they see what types of features are are evident that the client is being triggered so trauma informed systems are are you know certainly um, important in providing safe care and I think the other thing that's important too to understand. Uh, systems that are trauma-informed is the use of language and that we're identifying strengths in many other parts to our clients. With the grounding under painting of trauma-informed care is that we do no harm, that we, we do our best to provide environments and experiences of clients where they can feel safe. Because feeling safe is so, so difficult for many of our clients that have experienced childhood traumas and other types of compounding traumas in their lives. Uh, safety and feeling um, trust and security is quite difficult even within the client themselves. So it, it, it only adds to the question of how important it is for us to create this in our environments of treatments um, and how power operates within these environments that we are. We're finding ways to empower clients in their choices rather than disempowering them. You know, there's different uh, when we start to think about what treatment might look like for, for clients who have experienced forms of, of uh, uh, trauma or, or have symptoms of trauma. I thought I'd give you a little overview. I mean, one of the things we look at is a, a model that Judith Herman's put together from as far back as 1992. She uses a three-stage kind of model. Uh, you know, stage one is to establish safety. And, and in this establishing safety, that we create kind of a securing, safe um, experience for our clients and that we're starting to stabilize all the symptoms that they're experiencing. Uh, there's, you know, if we think about the many symptoms that our clients are presenting with, you know, that they're starting to feel kind of safe in their bodies. Uh, and, and we also know that uh, there's lots of ways that people are coping uh, who experience trauma, oftentimes it's maladaptive through substance use, self-harm, um, other types of behaviors, maybe anger outbursts and so forth and so on. So helping our clients learn to kind of regulate uh, their emotions and their abilities to kind of um, stay calm in their bodies and and manage their impulses and being able to self-soothe and manage the, you know, the post-traumatic symptoms that can be easily triggered through even the most mundane events or situations helping our clients learn to do that is is, is extremely critical and and so if you're looking for support in this area um, it's certainly important to know that this is the very first stage of what what therapy should look like for for all of our clients or for your families or loved ones for yourself and being able to come to recognize your signs and symptoms in this first stage and understand how they're operating within you, within your body, within your uh, intrusive uh, emotions and and maybe in your thoughts, uh, which can be at times quite, uh, your thoughts may always be operating from the place of the worst outcome and, and fear responses and quite, even at sometimes you might even question your thoughts quite distorted. Trauma is very individualized. So how all of this um, evolves out of the individual is different from one person to the next. And so knowing your own symptoms is really critical because once you begin to know your symptoms, then you can also develop strategies on how to kind of manage these symptoms. And in this, also this first stage, the stabilization, we're looking at, you know, developing a safe environment that, you know, environment really matters if, if you're, if if you're living in an environment that doesn't feel safe and there is a lack of safety and security for you and you've had prior traumas, all the environment does is continue to re-trigger these historical traumas um traumas and it triggers all of these bodily responses and intrusive thoughts and emotions and all these other things that are your own symptoms. So creating bodily safety and safety in your environment and learning to manage your emotions and, and kind of regulate and learn to, to kind of stay within the window of tolerance um, is is really the first stage. In this first stage of stabilization, really the goal of this stage is to create a safe and and stable um, life in the here and now. That that when you're in the here and now, you can be present, allowing yourself to feel um, to feel as safe as you can. That you may even be able to remember the trauma rather than continue to live in the trauma or relive the trauma, or or, or continue to kind of respond as if the trauma is still occurring, and that the trauma can become here, um, something a little bit more in the past and not that it continues to relive moment by moment. So this is a stabilization phase. And then we go into the next phase uh, in in Judith Herman's model, which is um, coming to terms with the trauma memories. You know, at this stage, the focus is really on learning to kind of, um, you know, overcome the fears of the traumatic memory so that, that you can be in the process of integrating back. You know, the integration part is that all of these trauma triggers, which some may define today as emotional parts that are unintegrated um, from your traumas that are at the you know, at the same developmental stage at where they were formed, that as we get to this stage two, we're starting to learn to work through some of these fears and these memories, and that we're starting to integrate back. And really, the main work in these and uh, of this stage involves kind of two parts to it: learning to rewrite and discuss memories. In ways, learning to kind of talk about it, reviewing them and discussing them in ways that these memories um, and the emotional intensities are um, kind of shifted into um, a revised meaning of one's life and identity. So starting to, um, you know, look at the trauma and look at how we're thinking about the trauma and how we've um, started to kind of maybe... um, in memory remember this trauma and oftentimes there's not a beginning middle and an end oftentimes our memory only remembers the worst part at the worst part and so we're starting to move this memory and shift and change it to you know a place where you might have felt um, moving the endpoint past to a place where you felt safe uh, maybe a place that you felt uh, more secure a, a place that, that you felt you had some distance away from the trauma And then you're starting to work through um, other parts of the trauma too. There could be other components of grief, about the unwanted or the abusive experiences, the negative effects uh, that it's had on your life. So you're working through grief and a lot of shame and these types of things that keep the trauma very much um, anchored and alive. So we start to process and work through that. And, you know, in Herman, she also describes that there's a mourning phase are working through the grief about the the good experiences that one did not have as a result of being affected by their trauma. He, in this process too, when we get to this stage two, um, there's different types of trauma therapies that can be used um, to support people in this phase two. EMDR, prolonged exposure, CBT, you know, trauma and reduction, mindfulness, you know, lots of different types of uh, models that can be used here, um, you know, structural dissociative. So the list goes on, but certainly it's the phase where we're starting to work through the fears, of the traumatic memories, and starting to work back to integration, back to the whole self. And then the last stage is you're integrating and then you're starting to move on. So decreasing the shame and the alienation that, that you feel as a result of what was done to you, and also shifting that inner inner kind of thoughts of um, that I'm responsible for my trauma or I failed to do something with what happened to me. And this idea of the shame that can be attached to it that leads you to feel like I'm a horrible person, a bad person. I'm I'm worthless. And and shame has a deep, profound effect, and especially when the shame has started earlier on in life as a result of childhood uh, victimization. Into late adulthood, the shame is is quite profound, and quite quite um, quite a part of personality. So here we're starting to develop the capacity to kind of start to work through shame, and and help um, our you know to help to sort through how can we start to kind of. Um, uh, find different ways to understand the trauma experience and the shame that's attached to it, and starting to rethink the self in in new ways, positive ways, and ways of resiliency, and ways of of strengths and growth, and 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 especially self kindness and self compassion. And you know, in this phase too, we're developing. Some abilities to start to kind of work towards the healthier attachments and relationships, and learning to overcome fears and of your normal day to day life, and reconnecting back to the world, um, and that you're starting to kind of um, also learn some healthy uh, ways to cope and live and change, and and, um, and then we're also starting to develop some healthy ways to 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 heal the self and and ways that you're you're developing strategies to kind of um, reconnect back to the world. That when you leave your home, or where you walk in the neighborhood, or wherever you go, that you start to. Um, start to reconnect back in a way that you're learning to live in the world in, in a way that you're feeling safe and the safety starts within yourself and then starting to move this into the world and how do you start to do this uh, so that you can, you can function and live in the world and in, in, a, in, a, in a way beyond your trauma. So those are the three stages of Judith Herman's model. And, you know, in all all these stages, we're also talking about how do you how do you also – at all three stages, manage the feelings that people can be going through a powerless and shame and guilt and And Oftentimes, there's a lot of reenactment behavior where you start to reenact uh, the abusive patterns uh, in your current relationships uh, or reenact your past traumas and your fight-flight-fear responses in your current intimate relationships. So this is always being kind of uh, worked on at all three stages and recognized and Identified. So, listen, this is um, a lot of information in a short period of time. Um, I'm going to continue the conversation uh, moving forward because this is the underpinnings of thinking about um, as we think about uh, trauma in connection to mental health and addictions. What we have covered is that, you know, there's a high prevalence again of of uh, trauma within the mental health and addiction systems, up to 90% and 30 30 to 53% of people that have come into our systems have been affected by childhood trauma. We've talked about the importance of trauma-informed care. So how do we think about providing care, knowing that these numbers are so high within all of our systems? And then we've gone through a little bit of the, what is trauma from kind of a basic um, diagnostic perspective. And then we started to explore what does, what does trauma look like? How do we start to think about the stages of recovery for trauma using the Judith Herman model, stage one, stabilization? And then we've gone to um, the stage two, which is um, describing how do we come to terms with the traumatic memories and start to work through those memories. And then we've got the stage three, which really is about integrating and moving on and being able to live in the world. Uh, within yourself and within the world, so that covers um, a good start for our segment of of looking at trauma, and and also starting to think about trauma from not just a clinical perspective, but hopefully um, providing more information. Where we're going to go with this now is starting to look a little bit more uh, at the role of of uh, specifically of trauma and how it can affect individuals, families, and and groups and communities and cultures. We're going to look at the different levels of trauma, um, the implications of trauma over a lifespan. I'm going to spend some time talking about that and how you know early childhood experiences have a profound impact over a lifespan uh, of a of a of an individual's life. Um, uh, we're going to cover secondary trauma. Have some conversations around what that might look like and in other areas that. Can infect, uh, affect affect um, first responders, right? Um, you know the ideas of secondary vicarious trauma and and toxic shock syndrome from doing the work, and compassion fatigue. So these are a few few um, next next parts of our of our podcast. Listen, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Um, I do want to thank you very much for listening to it, uh, and I and I hope you kind of um, connect to my channel and, and follow me. Um, so, look forward to our next podcast that will continue the conversation. And again, um, hoping you all well and that you can live beyond your limits. All right, take take care. This is Ian Robertson. Have a great day. Bye bye.